Welcome to the Aguilar Conversations, a global perspective. I'm Tony Aguilar. On today's podcast, in 1945, the world was introduced to the horrific devastation of the atom bomb. Today, there are almost 13,000 known nuclear weapons around the world, and while the risk of nuclear war has steadily increased, the issue has receded into the background of public debate since the great protests of the 1970s and 80s. With the recent release of the movie Oppenheimer, Russia's veiled threat of a potential use of tactical nuclear weapons against Ukraine, and North Korea's continued testing of nuclear weapons, interest has increased in the potential devastation of a nuclear conflict. But is the quest to eliminate nuclear weapons too late? How close is the world to a nuclear conflict? Next. Washington, D.C. is John Carl Baker, who is the Nuclear Field Coordinator and Senior Program Officer at Plowshares Fund, which is the largest grant-making foundation with a focus on nuclear deterrence. His writings and analysis have appeared in various publications, including The New Republic, Defense One, Jacobin, and Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Dr. Baker, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Let me start out with this. Um, in one of your articles in, in the Jacobin magazine, talking about Russia's in sort of saying that they're going to use perhaps tactical nuclear weapons against uh, Ukraine, your article suggests that we need to be sober about that. So I want to ask you if you could expand on that, but also talk about it if we need to be sober about that particular scenario. How should we be overall in terms of nuclear deterrence and possibility of nuclear conflict. Sure, absolutely. Well, they're related. So I think it's best to just kind of take the two questions together. And when I say we should be sober about the risk, what I mean is that we should be concerned. It's certainly something to bear in mind. And everyone should know that nuclear risks are rising, that geopolitical conditions are declining. And that, um, you know, there is a possibility, even if a small one, that a nuclear weapon could really be used in war. And I think there was um, increased attention to this, understandably, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and there continues to be, in part because Russian sources will occasionally make reference to their nuclear capabilities. There are pundits and even some politicians in Russia who have talked about actually using a nuclear weapon in Ukraine. Uh, which is deeply concerning and incredibly destabilizing for the international environment. And so I think, first off, I just want to say that that is a very real risk. It's something that's really concerning, and it's good that people are paying attention to it. At the same time, though, we don't want to be alarmist. We don't want to heighten the risks to an extent that they really aren't. We don't want to have an incorrect view of what the risk of a nuclear weapon use actually is. And the risk is too high, in my opinion, it's concerningly high, but we ought to bear in mind that the risk of it being used is still overall very, very low. And I think this is important when it comes to discussing our policies with regard to Ukraine, because there are some people who who rightly understand that there is a possibility of the, of the, U, of the US and Russia getting into a nuclear war over a conflict like the war in Ukraine. But at the same time, their view of the risk is, in my opinion, a little inflated. And therefore, it kind of stops them from taking a look at the whole conflict, um, a holistic view that would justify, in my opinion, some defense support right, for Ukraine, which is, after all, an innocent country that got invaded by a nuclear armed power. Um, so there are some people, for instance, who take a very, very hands-off approach to that conflict. And they basically say that anything the United States does um, is increasing the risk of a conflict between the US, NATO, and Russia. 
Um, and I don't take that exact view. I think that there are certain things we we could do, which would be incredibly risky. And there certainly are some which I do not agree with. For instance, there was this, just discussion early on about establishing a no-fly zone um, in Ukraine, which I think is a terrible idea. And I'm very glad that it did not happen because it would have uh, greatly increased the likelihood of a direct shooting conflict between the US and Russia. But you know there are other uh, angles to the conflict, other activities that we can engage in, such as giving the Ukrainians uh, you know, weapons. Uh, depends on what the weapons are, of course, but certain weapons, I don't think particularly increase the likelihood of Russian escalation. And actually so far, we haven't seen a lot of Russian escalation. Um, there, there, there's, it still could happen, certainly. But the Russians have made a lot of bluster. But um, as near as I can tell, they haven't actually changed their nuclear posture any. So we just have to approach the issue with a kind of sober frame of mind, recognizing that the risks are rising and they are real. But at the same time, we don't want to scare ourselves into a kind of paralysis where we're not taking a very holistic view of the conflict and you know weighing the different risks against each other, because not all risks are equal. Now, one of the challenges, though, is that we can define the nuclear risk as only between the United States and Russia, because there are other actors in, in the field as well. North Korea, uh, Iran and its uh, growing nuclear program, also China. So how does that play out as well? Uh, North Korea, for example, wants unification of South Korea and North Korea. And they have become very belligerent over the last several years with their uh, testing of nuclear weapons and nuclear capability. So where are we with, when it comes to that and other actors in the nuclear field? Well, there certainly are a lot of developments. I mean, one of the biggest ones is the fact that China, which until recently had a pretty modest nuclear arsenal of a few hundred warheads, um, and a pretty restrained nuclear pose, I would say, um, is increasing its arsenal, apparently to a very significant degree. According to the Pentagon's assessment, uh, by the year 2035, they could have as many as 1,500 nuclear warheads, which is a major expansion. Uh, now, we don't know if the trend's going to continue. Um, that's kind of if things continue as they are now. But it's a real possibility, and it's clear that they certainly are undergoing a significant expansion. And that's going to change the way um, that the U.S. and other countries have to assess the risk of nuclear war. I do not think it means necessarily that we should, for instance, increase our arsenal. That's something that I think would be a, a huge mistake. Um, our arsenal, even with the Chinese expansion, even if it goes to those high numbers, is still vastly greater, right? It is. We have far more weapons. And in fact, I believe um, 1,500 warheads is on China's side is still less than the amount we just keep ready to use and deployed. And we have thousands more in storage. So we have to kind of bear in mind that there is some asymmetry between, uh, between the sides. But North Korea is another major challenge. And North Korea's program is often talked about as if it's very new, if it's as if it's kind of um, emergent, uh, not terribly sophisticated. But this is just completely wrong. North Korea is a very mature nuclear armed state. It has many different kinds of delivery devices. It has short range missiles, medium range missiles, intercontinental ballistic missiles. It has cruise missiles. It's working on warhead miniaturization so it, it can increase the number of tactical nuclear weapons it has. And it has actually talked about using them first in some scenarios. So the risk on the Korean peninsula of a conflict is high, I would say. I mean, it's I mean, the overall, the risk is low, perhaps, but it is a rising risk. And it's something that I think we're not paying attention to. Uh, right now, there are major U.S. and South Korea nuclear exercises happening in uh, conjunction with provocations from the North. And that is just you know, a recipe for potential miscalculation um, where you could have the sides get into a shooting conflict when they don't necessarily want to. Um, and of course, there are nuclear implications to that conflict. So these are very, very concerning developments on the international stage. And, and there are others, too. I think those are just the two that are top of mind for me. Let me ask you this, because I want to go back to the Russia-Ukraine um, war for a moment. If you begin to look at that, and Russia, who um, they just broke the memorandum, the Budapest memorandum between them and Ukraine, 
which essentially guaranteed Ukrainian sovereignty. And they broke that treaty. But does that send a sign to smaller nations that says, look, if you have nuclear weapons, you are no longer a target for invasion by either someone like Russia or even the United States that invaded Iraq many years ago. So do nations look at this and say one way to basically guarantee our sovereignty under perhaps a, a Westphalian sense of what democracy and sovereignty is, is to have nuclear weapons. I mean, when, when it comes to the specific case of the Budapest Memorandum, I think the only kind of real answer there is maybe. We, we don't know the long-term ramifications of the Russian war in Ukraine. Although I will say, at least in the abstract, it wouldn't surprise me if states um, that are facing questionable security conditions start considering nuclear armament as a way to prevent invasion. And as you just referenced, I mean, we know that the North Koreans paid very close attention to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, and that was at least a factor in their decision to officially go nuclear uh, back in 2006. I will say here that it's kind of a common misunderstanding of the Budapest Memorandum, uh, this idea that Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in exchange for security guarantees. And it's it's certainly true that there were nuclear weapons in Ukraine, but they weren't actually Ukrainian weapons. Um, these were Soviet weapons that Ukraine couldn't actually use. Um, the Soviets had security measures in place so that these weapons couldn't be just you know unlocked easily. Um, so it's true that Ukraine gave them up, but they also never really owned them. Um, they were one of several uh, kind of post-socialist states, right, after the fall of the Soviet empire that, um, you know, had made the decision to give up their weapons. But I will say, you know, in the long term, it's a possibility. Um, and whenever you have a nuclear armed power invade a state without nuclear weapons, it's going to raise some eyebrows. And there is always the possibility that a state will decide, you know what, it's not worth it. Uh, we are willing to take the penalties. We're going nuclear because it's a way to guarantee our security. And we as the United States and other countries in the international community, they need to take that risk very seriously. And it's why dealing with situations like Ukraine is so important, because you, you do not want to risk greater proliferation of weapons. Um, it's a good thing that there are only nine states on Earth that have nuclear weapons. Um, and you know, I think that number is still too high, but still nine countries out of, you know, what is it, 200 countries on Earth, something like that, is a pretty good ratio. We just don't want it uh, to get higher. But if you look at other, other nations uh, who are forming their own regional associations or trying to strengthen their associations, whether it could be the African Union or the Association of Southeast Asian Nations or um, the uh, nations around Latin America who may be thinking about why can't we have our own weapon system. The question I would have, because you've been in this for a long, long time, how do you disincentivize smaller nations from thinking about how to create their own nuclear weapon program? It's a really good question. I mean, the, the classic model here is the non-proliferation treaty, um, which basically is a kind of grand bargain between um, five nuclear armed powers and a lot, <laughs> um, 190, something. I mean, a lot, a lot, I can't remember how many signatories it is, but it's it's a great number of states that do not have nuclear weapons. And in, you know, in most cases, never had them and are not going to have them. And in the case of the NPT, that grand bargain is essentially that the nuclear armed powers agreed to share peaceful nuclear technology, which what we really mean here is nuclear energy, with the states that don't have nuclear weapons in, in exchange for a guarantee that those states are never going to develop them. Um, and uh, for the most part, it's worked pretty well. Um, you know, there were predictions back in the Cold War that we were we would have dozens of nuclear armed states by this point. And we don't. We have nine, which is not a huge number. I, as I said before, I think it's still too high, uh, but um, it's really not that many states. Uh, the trick, right, is that part of the nonproliferation treaty, uh, what's called Article six of the treaty, um, 
compels, mandates that the nuclear armed powers that signed the treaty, which by the way, are the P5 who run the UN Security Council, it mandates that they make a good faith effort toward nuclear disarmament. The problem is that certainly right now, they're clearly not doing that. And there isn't really a very powerful enforcement mechanism to get them to do that. So the risk is that even though the treaty, I think overall has worked extremely well over the past 50 years, um, the risk is that people are gonna start questioning, well, is this really a fair deal for me if the states that have the weapons aren't really giving them up? Because one of the criticisms that's sometimes made by um, uh, made of the non-proliferation treaty by states that aren't party to it is that it almost codifies or legalizes or makes official the P5's possession of nuclear arms. So it basically says like they have, you know, they're the states that legitimately have nuclear weapons and no other state can really have them. And if states that are signatories to it feel like they're getting a, an unfair deal because it's clear that the nuclear armed powers are just kind of flaunting Article 6, you know, there's a risk that they might consider, hmm, maybe the MPT isn't for me. That hasn't happened very often. I mean, North Korea is, you know, that's a, a rare state that had to actually leave the NPT, and we all know where, the, where that ended up. Uh, but it is a risk. And so you have to think about how you incentivize states to do the right thing, yes, which is often a matter of, you know, granting concessions of some kind, giving them the classic like carrot, right? As opposed to the stick in the case of the MPT, it being nuclear energy. But you also have to think about holding accountable the states that have nuclear arms now and making sure that they're not doing things that are gonna disrupt, you know, what passes for international order. And things like say a nuclear armed state invading a non-nuclear armed power, like what happened when Russia invaded Ukraine, they are those kind of situations where it would make sense for states to start considering you know, do we really get what we need out of the NPT? Is there a reason for us to perhaps go a different route? And that's where you get into the real risk of proliferation. And as you had said, it's when you look at the larger countries who will only adhere to the NPT as it pertains to their own particular self-interest. I mean, Russia has suspended its participation in START. And uh, this is not new United States under George Bush uh, Jr. had pulled back a little bit as well. So it seems as though, you know, the smaller nations do look at this and say all these treaties are fine, but they only work as long as the, the bigger nations want them to work. And the smaller nations, unfortunately, uh, under the thumb of these larger nations, and which brings me back to the position of how do we disincentivize smaller nations if they find that larger nations are doing what they want to do anyway? It's a great point. I mean, I think smaller countries have come up with some interesting solutions to this. I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but a good chunk of the earth is already covered with nuclear weapons free zones. Um, there are several of them, and these were largely the initiative of states in the global south who basically said, we are renouncing the use of nuclear weapons, we're not going to develop them. And part of the argument was that they were bad for their security. I mean, this is something that I think smaller states often do a very good job of, is making the point that, you know, it would actually be foolhardy and against their self-interest to pursue nuclear arms. And it's easier to do that when you're participating in a community of states, right, that have already agreed not to do that. Because otherwise you end up in situations like where, for instance, the Middle East, there's always, a, a, and there continues to be, right, a risk of a potential arms race there. And that's why some states in the Middle East have tried, have talked about the necessity of implementing a, new, uh, a nuclear weapons free zone there. But for instance, if you're looking at, you know, Latin America or Africa or elsewhere, you know, those states don't feel the risk because much of the community has already signed on to a nuclear weapons free zone. So they are incentivized to, you know, not make that radical call of deciding to develop nuclear arms because they would be the outlier, there would be ramifications, and it doesn't make much sense in their communities because they're not actually threatened by a nearby nuclear armed state. 
So that's why these, these um, treaties like that can be so important because they establish an entire community, entire regions of the earth that are basically rejecting uh, the possibility of acquiring nuclear arms. And I think they do have a powerful you know, incentivizing element there because no one wants to buck the entire community, right? And there are real benefits to um, you know, being a leader on the issue of non-proliferation, um, not just in those you know, areas, right? But globally, I mean, you can carry the torch and say, you know, our region of the earth has already rejected nuclear weapons. It's the rest of the, the planet, often the global north, right? That takes a very different attitude towards nuclear weapons where they are much more comfortable with using them as the basis for their security. Um, the kind of global South and the regions covered by the by nuclear weapons free zone say, you know, you can have a different version of security, right? There is a security that is not guaranteed by nuclear weapons and is actually threatened by the existence of them. And that's why those treaties are so important. They really help to incentivize people to take a very different approach to security. And, it, and, it, and it's not just a different approach. It really is a different form of security. You know, there is a reality to it that I think people um, that are pro-nuclear weapons miss. They don't understand the real utility of things like that. Let me take this one step further, then I want to move on to another topic of this. Given, let's say, the continent of Africa, for example, where you have competition now between the United States, Russia, China, China in particular with its Belt and Road Initiative, if any of them would win that battle or win influence, for example, you have across like Central Africa right now, Russia and a Wagner group coming in, could that be a way that that equation that you were speaking about in the treaties would shift? If Russia would say to Niger or to Mali, or you just had the another coup um, in Gabon, and they would say, we want to have some of our nuclear weapons here. Could that shift the equation when it comes to a nuclear disarmament? I mean, certainly if that happened, it would shift the equation. Um, I mean, it would be a sea change in international conditions if, for instance, uh, some nuclear armed power stationed weapons in Africa um, or, you know, was clearly working with an African state to lay the basis for them to go nuclear, maybe not now, but down the road. Um, you know, it, it would be a real, um, a major occurrence, I think, on the world stage. But, you know, we also have to give African nations and other nations in the global South credit. You know, I think people think that they've just become anti-nuclear weapons almost by default. And that is really not true. They play an active role on the world stage. They're some of the biggest supporters of the abolition of nuclear weapons and continue um, to do that. Um, they're big backers of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Um, and that matters. And it means that these states can't just be, um, you know, forced or coerced into doing what, say, Russia, China, or the United States want them to do. Now, that said, we do need to understand that there's a big power imbalance between, you know, your average state in the continent of Africa and, you know, Russia, which has its power backed up by thousands of nuclear weapons. So there is always the possibility for coercion. But we, we should recognize the agency, I think, of states in the global south and the fact that their opposition to nuclear weapons isn't just a matter of accident um, or pure contingency. It's something that they've actually decided upon for their own security. And I think in that sense, you would see some pushback if a country like China or Russia or for that matter, the United States disrupted the African, let's say, security situation that drastically by working to you know proliferate weapons on the continent it would be a major major development and you would see many african states oppose it now plowshares is still in the business of talking about complete nuclear disarmament and i want to talk about it in, in kind of two two portions right here one is that you really don't see the issue bubbling up politically, particularly in the United States, as it was in the 1970s and the 1980s. But second, you have written about how the nuclear disarmament campaign is going to have to shift and become more intersectional. Could you talk more about that? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, the, the short answer about why nuclear weapons aren't, I don't know, central to political debates today is really that there, there isn't much of a popular constituency for the issue. Um, it's just not the same as the level of domestic support that you see for climate action or immigration reform or racial justice. And, and that's not really surprising, right? I mean, those are very, very tangible, visceral issues that impact people on a day-to-day -day basis. Nuclear weapons are something I'm sure they know about, and they realize that there's a risk of nuclear war, but it's a pretty abstract threat. It's not the kind of thing that you're worried about on a daily basis. I mean, if you're concerned about your relatives being detained by ICE and deported you know, from the US, um, that's obviously a much more immediate concern than the possibility of nuclear war. So you know, when I say that we do need to be more intersectional, one of the things I, I think we need to recognize is that we can't just play a zero sum game with nuclear disarmament and say like, you're paying attention to this issue and you should be paying attention to that issue. That is the absolute wrong way to approach the issue. And, and it's wrong in the sense of kind of morally wrong, right? Because clearly these issues matter to people and they are really important, okay? But it's also wrong in the political sense because you're hurting the possibility for a coalition that you need to build. Because in truth, a lot of these people who are focused on other issues are at least passive supporters of the idea of nuclear disarmament. And so what we need to do is explain how issues are linked, show the connections, for instance, between like, I don't know, the militarization of the border and the absurd level of our Pentagon budget, um, and talk about how nuclear weapons spending is sizable and could easily be cut back, um, which would allow to for the transition of resources away from the military and towards social spending, which would clearly improve the domestic situation. Um, you know, we've got to draw the linkages between the issue. And part of that too, isn't just, you know, making the connections clear, but actually talking about the issues that matter to people as nuclear experts and as, you know, anti-nuclear activists. Um, we have to show that we're showing up for the kind of social struggles that we see on the global stage right now. And it, and it is those things like, climate change, immigration reform, racial justice. And if we're just checked out of those issues and we're laser focused on nuclear disarmament, we're not gonna build that constituency that we have to have. Um, and we're gonna you know, exclude and ostracize people that I think otherwise would really be on our side. So our community um, really needs to think more intersectionally. And I do think it has improved. I think there are a lot of um, changes that have been made in recent years, but clearly a, a lot more room to grow to. Now, the movie Oppenheimer has increased some interest in the idea of nuclear disarmament or in the history of it altogether. Has that aided you or assisted you in, in the work that you do? It has. It's been a fantastic tool, I think. Our foundation has partnered with um, others in the community to organize some showings of the film, uh, sometimes followed by opportunities to learn a little bit about nuclear weapons. And, and just in general, it's really raised the salience of the issue. I was at a wedding recently um, talking to someone that I do not know well, um, but I, I I guess he knew that I worked um, at a foundation that deals with nuclear risks and just out of the blue was like, have you seen Oppenheimer? And we ended up having um, you know a, a, a conversation about nuclear weapons. Um, and I cannot imagine that ever happening um, without the fact that this major, major Hollywood motion picture is out there and tons of people are going to see it. It really has... Um, drawn attention to the issue in a useful way. That said, I think it's up to um, others to use the tool that exists, right? And be a little opportunistic about it and say, you know, it's great that you're concerned about nuclear weapons. Um, we agree. We think the film Oppenheimer really um, says a lot about the risk of nuclear war. And here's what you can actually do. I think the important thing is actually giving people something that they can do to lower the risk because it's such an abstract and apocalyptic honestly threat that it's really easy to just kind of chalk it up to something you can't 
make any difference about. But that's flat out not true. Um, in the 1980s and, and before, other, at other times too, there were citizen upsurges that had a major impact um, in the long run on um, the Cold War, on the possibility of nuclear war, and they really changed things for the better. I don't think we would have ever gotten some of the treaties that we ended up with at the end of the um, Cold War, such as the uh, INF Treaty and others, without that citizen upsurge. And it's important to remember too that it wasn't just in the US. I mean, this was a global phenomenon. Um, and that's an important thing to remember because as abstract and um, out there as this issue often seems, it really is something that ordinary people can can make a difference on. And at, at Plowshares Fund, we try to emphasize that. One of the things that did come out of the Oppenheimer movie was movement on legislation from a federal level to enable people who um, were victimized by the blast in New Mexico who um, developed cancer so that they can receive a remuneration from that, which is a positive thing, obviously. Uh, because that is something that is very rarely talked about. You know, we talk about Hiroshima and Nakasami, as we should, but the people who were around the blast in New Mexico uh, during the Manhattan Project who were devastated as well, that's something that has really gotten lost in, in our history in terms of nuclear blasting here in the United States. It's true. I mean, I... I think a lot of people don't understand that the United States conducted something like a thousand nuclear weapons tests um, over the length of the Cold War, um, quite a few of which were, you know, tests that were not underground, right? They were actually atmospheric tests and had a kind of direct impact on people in the communities nearby. And as you said, the very first Trinity test, the test that's shown in Oppenheimer, um, that was not conducted in an area that had zero population. There were communities that lived there. Um, there were indigenous communities that were impacted by it and others. And shockingly, they have never been covered by the Radiation Exposure and Compensation Act. And that's why this movement that you mentioned, I, I believe it was um, passed by the Senate, um, is so encouraging because um, that legislation, when it was originally passed, only covered a very limited number of people in a very like specific and limited you know set of states. And in fact, there are downwinders who have been impacted by nuclear testing in many other areas, and they've never been able to see receive compensation for it. So if that is passed, and I think Oppenheimer, you know, is is at least helping to spur interest in the issue, um, it would be a major example of justice uh, for these communities who have been waiting a very long time. It, you know, meanwhile, they're afflicted by high rates of cancer in their communities, and they're receiving no compensation for it. So I agree with you. I mean, I think the, the film has drawn attention to that issue, and uh, it's something that I sincerely hope will be passed by Congress and signed into law by the, pre by the president very soon. Let's go back to the politics of nuclear disarmament for a moment. Sure. When you think about nations giving up their nuclear weapons, uh, yes, I agree with you that, you know, obviously, uh, historically, the, the weapons did not belong to Ukraine, but I, I have a feeling they wish they wouldn't have given them up anyway at this stage of the game, whether they could operate them or not. But it, who would be the first to give up their weapons? Because even if you had a movement within the United States, how feasible is it, let's say, for the U.S. to say, OK, we're going to give up all of our weapons first? And because we tend to think of our own nation as everyone is pointing their weapons at us. But we also have to understand that other nations have their own history of being invaded, of being attacked, Russia, for example. Um, and they should have their own mentality about their own defense, whether it's historically right or not, but this is how they feel. So my question would be, who would be the first to really say, we're going to give up our weapons? Well, it's a really good question. And this is a common objection to a lot of talk about nuclear disarmament. And I think it's important to remember that while that is often how it's discussed, right, historically, states, for instance, like the US and Russia, Soviet Union back then, 
they have been able to reduce their numbers and they did it bilaterally. They met together, they established a framework and they figured out, okay, we're gonna lower ours by this amount. You're gonna lower yours by this amount and we're gonna verify it you know, using these mechanisms. And in other words, it wasn't a matter of someone going first necessarily. They did it together and it lasted. I mean, there were tens of thousands more nuclear warheads on earth than there are now. And that's a huge gain, right? Since the the, the worst days of the Cold War. Um, no disarmament advocate really thinks that if, you know, some United States or Russia or whoever gave up their weapons immediately that other states would necessarily follow. Um, and they're not really asking their states to do that. I mean, one of the reasons that the international community, including many you know, non-nuclear weapon states in, in the global South are interested in the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons is that they, they want the nuclear armed states to abide by the good faith effort they're supposed to make, right? According to Article 6 of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. But they're not even doing that. I mean, they're not talking, right? China isn't talking with the US about its nuclear arsenal. The US and, and Russia aren't engaged in arms control talks. So, you know, it's it's less a matter of who goes first. I mean, we're not even at the stage where anyone is going to move. And so there's not even the, the basis for there to be some movement equally, right, concurrently, which is how things have happened in the past. So I think it's it's understandable why people are concerned about, you know, what would happen if someone immediately disarmed tomorrow. But no one realizes how unrealistic that is more than a dis nuclear disarmament advocate what people are trying to do is pressure the nuclear armed states to take the action they're supposed to. And one of the things that they could do that they're simply not doing is talking about nuclear arms control so that they can get to the point where they can mutually decide to take steps to reduce risks and reduce the number of weapons on earth. And I'm confident that you know that's going to happen eventually, but we have to use the tools that we have at our disposal. And that's part of the reason why there is a lot of advocacy for abolition in the global South and, and elsewhere, you know, even in countries like the United States, because it's a way to pressure the states to take action because before that they simply were ignoring, right? The, uh, the will and the desire, right? Of the rest of the world for them to pursue good faith uh, efforts towards disarmament. And historically there have been treaties, uh, for instance, on things like chemical weapons or cluster munitions that were, you know, initially not signed on to by some of the, um, you know, worst offenders, if you will, but they had the they had the impact of stigmatizing those weapons, and that's one of the things that I think uh, advocates for abolition are engaged in right now is they're making the overall point that like it is not acceptable that we should simply maintain nuclear weapons on Earth. We have to actually make an effort to get rid of them even if we understand that that effort is going to be very, very long-term. And they don't really have a say unless they're able to elbow their, you know, elbow the nuclear armed states into engaging in arms control talks. And, you know, they're not doing that right now. So it's a dangerous time. And I, I hope that um, advocates for everything from very modest arms control um, initiatives to outright abolition can in a united framework call for the nuclear armed states to do what they're supposed to do, abide by article six of the non-proliferation treaty and start talking again. A part of that, of what you're saying is going to uh, be in need of political leadership on a global level. Uh, President Biden at heart is an internationalist, whether you agree with his policies or not, but that's what he is at heart even despite his pulling out of Afghanistan, that's what he is. Uh, President Putin has shifted a little bit, although, you know, I mean, that's a whole different story, but his mindset has changed in terms of Russia's stance in the world. Uh, Xi Jinping uh, won't pick up the phone to talk to President Biden. So it's going to take a lot of political leadership but also it means uh, making deals and understanding not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You know, walking away from the Iran uh, deal was disastrous by the previous administration. Um, you know, since the previous administration, North Korea has again gotten more belligerent. 
So you're going to need more global leaders on the stage. How does Plowshares see in America the upcoming election and how that's going to affect the nuclear disarmament campaign? Because the United States is a huge part of that, despite what people may think about their policies in various places. But the U.S. is going to be a key leader in that. It will be, for sure. I mean, uh, the U.S. and Russia together controlled 90% of the nuclear weapons on Earth. So the U.S. is a major chunk of the remaining nuclear warheads on the planet. And whatever, whoever our leadership is here is going to have a major ability to impact global security conditions in the future years. I will say up front, we are a nonpartisan organization and we do not endorse any candidates. Uh, we are not allowed to. Um, so we don't have a stake in the election in that sense. But in broad strokes, I can talk about the different approaches that I think we've seen from the candidates. Um, and you're right, President Biden is an internationalist, um, at least he claims to be. And uh, I think it's fair to say that he will take a more restrained approach to nuclear weapons policy than we've seen historically. If you look at the Trump era nuclear posture review, for instance, um, it created new nuclear weapons programs. Um, it took a more hawkish approach to nuclear weapons. Um, and that's pretty classic kind of Republican approach to the issue. Um, they tend to be a little more accepting of nuclear arms, a little more skeptical of arms control, and quite skeptical of multilateral institutions like the UN, for instance, that play a role in constraining the number of nuclear arms on Earth. Um, now, that's not to let the Biden administration or a future you know, Biden two administration off the hook because their approach to the UN, uh, let's say varies. Uh, the Biden administration are strong, strong supporters of the non-proliferation treaty, which I, you know, I tend to agree with them on that, of course, but they're also major opponents of the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. And it's because they're a nuclear armed state and um, the United States actually across democratic and Republican administrations has worked to stymie the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons to block it. Um, it's worked with some of the other nuclear armed states, including some of its adversaries, to form a kind of united front against the call for them to ultimately eliminate their weapons. It does profess a kind of general, you know, desire to get rid of nuclear weapons sometime in the hazy distant future, but it's very opposed to concrete measures like the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons that are saying this needs to happen in you know, short, fairly short order. So there is a difference. And I think um, just like we saw with the Trump era nuclear posture review, if the Republicans win um, the election again, there's a possibility that they will find more money to put into new nuclear weapons programs. Um, there has been talk um, among opponents of arms control about not replacing New START um, which is due to expire in 2026. New START is the last remaining bilateral treaty constraining the U.S. and Russian arsenals. And it's going to go away in 2026 regardless, actually. Um, but if you had a Democratic administration, they tend to be a little more supportive of arms control. And so it's possible that they might talk with Russia to create a replacement treaty. Um, I think it would be great if a Republican administration did that. But historically, it seems a little unlikely. I mean, we know that Trump, for instance, um, was opposed to the New START Treaty literally from the moment he got into office, apparently on his first phone call with Putin um, way back, I guess it must have been 2017. Um, he talked about how he didn't like the New START Treaty. And there were a lot of actions during that administration where they pretty clearly were trying to undermine it as a treaty. Biden got into office and extended it, which was good, but it's going to expire in 2026 regardless. So that could be a big difference between the administrations, depending on who wins. Is there any kind of desire to negotiate arms control with Russia? Or is there, you know, just a kind of sense that that's not going to happen right now. And the proper response to, say, China's expansion and Russia's war in Ukraine is to um, increase the number of deployed nuclear warheads that the U.S. has, maybe even increase the overall numbers. I don't know. Uh, but it's a real risk. One more thing, on one more issue on this. 
Um, the Washington Post, I believe it was, reported that um, in the Trump administration, there was serious talk about um, conducting a nuclear weapons test, which the United States has not conducted since the early 1990s. Um, we are signatories of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, although we never ratified it, interestingly enough. Um, but we've basically maintained a moratorium on tests since, since we signed it. Um, now, that doesn't mean for sure that if um, a Republican takes power that they will you know, conduct a nuclear weapons test. But the fact that it's even being discussed is a little alarming. Um, and there's also evidence that both, uh, you know, or that actually all three of the um, major nuclear armed powers, the United States, Russia, and China, are updating their nuclear weapons test sites um, in preparation for a potential future test. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to do it, but I would imagine that if one of the states took the initiative and actually conducted a test, they would soon follow. And Russia has explicitly said that. So that's another one of the dangers that we're facing. And I think it's partly why it's, you know, one of the many reasons why this is such a dangerous period, because all of the norms and treaties that were established in the wake of the Cold War are declining and they're falling apart. And what we really don't want to happen is for there to be a reversal, a kind of a kind of nuclear regression in which the numbers of nuclear warheads on Earth start going up again and the risk of nuclear war increases. It's a very it's a very risky period, but it's also not inevitable. There are things that people can do about it. And it's one of the things that at Plasterous Fund we're trying to do is lower those risks and you know create a safer, better future for the planet. Which brings me to the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists Doomsday Clock, which a lot of people are aware of, but are not really aware of how that operates, what goes into its uh, determinant factor. How does that work, and where does the so-called Doomsday Clock say we are right now? Well, the Doomsday Clock is... Uh... First off, I should give a disclaimer here that we are funders of the Doomsday Clock and of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Um, so just want to be transparent about that. It, so, you know, the, the Doomsday Clock is a kind of tool to visualize the level of nuclear risk on Earth. Um, it's not an exact science, of course, but it is a way of representing the uh, current conditions as they exist on Earth. Um, right now, according to the clock, it is 90 seconds to midnight. And if you're not familiar with the doomsday clock, midnight represents uh, a potential catastrophic event like a nuclear war. Okay. Armageddon. Armageddon. Yes, Armageddon. And the closer that the hands are to midnight, the closer we are to a potential nuclear Armageddon. And 90 seconds is very close. Okay. It is very close. And I think what the um, bulletin is trying to represent there is just how high the risk is. Um, and it, and, and, and they, they're bearing in mind too, that people don't know. It's not well known just how high the risk is right now and how much security conditions have deteriorated. Um, you know, I don't like to compare things to moments in the cold war, but clearly conditions are bad and they're worse than they have been. Uh, I would say probably since the end of the cold war. And that's one of the things that the clock is trying to demonstrate. Um, the, the clock is set by uh, the Bulletin's Science and Security Board. I think it's a group of 18 experts. They have a variety of backgrounds and they meet uh, twice a year to discuss what's happening in the world, look at trends in nuclear weapons policy, see what's happening in, in international relations. And then they uh, seek out expert views, outside expert views as well, and come up with a um, you know approximation of how things are and where the clock should be set. And then they make the decision. And um, once a year they announce, you know, where the clock has been set for the year. It's a major, major moment actually for um, attention to nuclear weapons policy. I think it's fair to say that the doomsday clock announcement is probably the biggest media event um, on nuclear weapons policy all year. Um, so it's not the kind of thing that maybe directs policy, um, you know, <laughs> Uh, or impacts policy very directly in the sense that Joe Biden wakes up one day, uh, reads the bulletin, sees that the hands of the doomsday clock have changed and calls up the Pentagon to institute a no first use policy for nuclear weapons. But um, there, it is a moment when there's tons of attention to the issue and uh, it presents an opportunity to publicize the risk of, of nuclear weapons and of nuclear war and explain why conditions are declining, 
and, and perhaps more, most importantly, recommend policy changes that are going to make us safer. So, you know, it, it, it's a representation, it's a tool, it, it may not impact policy directly, but it does help the overall push by advocates and experts to institute uh, a better nuclear policy. Over the next 10 years, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Well, I'll give you two answers to this. I'm dodging your question, admittedly. The uh, sober rationalist analyst in me is very pessimistic. Um, I think it's fair to say that um, conditions are declining. Great power competition is at base a competition between nuclear armed states. And that means that as that competition ramps up, the risk of a nuclear conflict also increases. And I don't see a whole lot of off ramps right now for averting global competition, uh, great power competition. That said, there have been many, many depressing moments in the history of nuclear weapons when it seemed like there was no possibility of improvement, there was no reason for hope, and there was little that actually could be done to improve things. And I am very optimistic that this issue is going to gain adherence, if only because <laughs> the conditions are so bad and because nuclear weapons are going to be in the media far more than they were, say, you know, 10 years ago, um, the salience of the issue is only going to increase. And I have a great deal of faith in ordinary people, and I know that they are going to understand, come to understand how important this issue is. And I hope that we who are in the nuclear policy community can show them that they really can make a difference and give them opportunities to impact that policy because ultimately it impacts them. This isn't just something that, you know, is decided by people in the halls of government and only impacts those people. It's something that we all have to deal with. It's a risk that impacts all of us. And um, I am optimistic in the sense that I think there's going to be increased attention to the issue. I think you're going to see more people taking it up and maybe even ultimately some kind of resurgence of the disarmament movement. I think we've already seen some indications you know, in that vein. I don't think it's gonna to happen tomorrow. Um, and I also am worried that things are gonna get worse before they get better. But I do think it's a real possibility. And in that sense, I do have hope that there are gonna be changes and changes for the better. My guest today has been John Carl Baker, Senior Program Officer at the Plowshares Fund. Dr. Baker, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Great to talk with you. And thank you for joining us today. And join us again next week as we discuss another issue of global importance here on the Aguilar Conversations, A Global Perspective. Aguilar Conversations, a global perspective, is produced by Casa Margo Communications Group.